I was recently informed, I just can't start with that, um, I was recently informed that the surf is exceptionally good right now, so I really do think Mike did a great job reading the scripture, let's just go ahead and pray, and no, just kidding, um, but I, <laughs> um, but this passage is uh, dear to my heart, it's, it's one of the first ones I learned as a young collegian Christian uh, and uh, it's been with me ever since. So I love this passage. It, there's, there are a couple of maybe um, slightly confusing things in it uh, because Paul has a tendency to put a lot of words together. Uh, but let's not miss the point here of what he's trying to say to us this morning. Uh, and with that, let's just pray. Father God, we come to you because you have the words of life and you have uh, written them down for us. You've had it. You've caused it to be written down for us this morning. And so we come to you. We are not coming to each other alone. We are coming to you and we pray that you would open our minds and ears to the truth of the gospel that we see here in, in this book. And that you and your spirit would, would apply it to our hearts so that we can live it out this week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, Paul began a series uh, that was in the book of John. He's going to start the book of John. And the, one of the goals that he has for, uh, for all of us as he goes through the book of John is to, um, oh, I'm sorry, the K-1 kids. Yes, uh, if you're in kindergarten or first grade, you're dismissed to go to the K-1 service in the back there. You can make your way back. They were doing this, and I was like, what? <laughs> uh, but, but one of the goals that Paul has for his series in the book of John is to equip us so that we can lead others through the book of John. Uh, and there are, if you think about sharing your faith with non-Christians, there are many obstacles that you can think of. There are many barriers or challenges that you, the Christian, can think of when you share your faith with a non-Christian. And Paul attempts, he's, gain, he's aiming at uh, taking one of the big challenges away from us, one of the obstacles away from us, and that is, do I know enough? Do I know enough uh, about the Bible, about the book of John, that I could possibly answer some questions that someone has. Uh, and remember, Paul said that he was meeting one day at KNW with somebody, a friend of his he had shared Christ with, and this friend said, I, I gave my life to the Lord. And Paul said, yeah, but I really just led you to the door of salvation. That's all I can do. The Spirit really takes you through, and your courage takes you through, but, but I just led you to the door. And the response he got back was, yeah, but there was a lot of furniture that you had to move to get me to the door. And so in the book of John, as we talk about the book of John in the upcoming weeks, that's what Paul's doing. He wants us to take the furniture away from the door of salvation in, in the lives of other people around us. Sure, we can go through it with our kids. We can certainly go through it with a struggling Christian. But I think one of the main goals is to find, identify someone in our life who's a non-Christian and go through the book of John with them. So they can see the gospel as if for the first time. This morning, it's a little bit different. We're not talking about things you might not know about the gospel. This morning, there are walls that exist between the Christian and the non-Christian, the church and the world. And these walls are eternally frustrating to me personally. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, I took a philosophy class uh, in college, and the first few weeks I got to know some of the guys in the back of the classroom, and they weren't Christians, I could tell, <laughs> by what we were talking about. 
And uh, it just so happens about the third weekend, you know, we were buddies. We had some rapport. We had some laughs. And, and I asked a question of the professor. And something in my question must have prompted him to ask me, well, are you a Christian? And I said to the professor, well, yes, I am. Well, what kind of Christian? Uh, I'm born again. That's the first thing I thought of. I'm born again. And he said, well, are you a devout Christian? And I said, uh, well, t- to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm, I'm being a good Christian. I'm quoting scripture. <laughs> to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And he said, well, I think that's pretty devout. And in the peripheral vision, I could see my buddies, my newfound friends looking at me in surprise, like my cover's blown, you know. And I looked at one of them, and it was the look, I don't know for sure, but I thought it was the look of betrayal. Because over the last few weeks, you know what had happened? He had shared about his weekend and about his hopes and dreams. We talked about TV shows and girls, and he was colorful in his descriptions of these things, you see. And it was it was very apparent to him that now I'm this super Christian. Oh my goodness, you betrayed me. And, and I, I felt uneasy, tense. And from that day on, no matter what I tried, it was different. Their language was buttoned up. They avoided whole topics out of respect for me. Now, on one hand, I felt pretty good. They were trying to be respectful to me. But as a Christian trying to reach out, it was, it was eternally frustrating. And I left that class not having shared the gospel with any of them, at least to my satisfaction. So these walls are there. Now, what do we do with these walls? Whenever I talk to other Christians about these kinds of walls that exist between us and the world, here's what a lot of Christians might say. There's two reactions that I think. One is a reaction of fear. Fear. And fear, of course, as you know, leads to paralysis. You are paralyzed in fear. You're inside the walls, not going to break them down. In fact, many of these walls I built myself to protect myself and those I love. And so I protect them and I I keep myself in here and I'm fearful. Let me give you an example of this kind of fear. You might be suffering from this, as I have in the past. Let's say, parents, you have a child. Those of you who don't have a child, just pretend for a moment that someone is your child, and you're going to send your child out into the world, whether it's a public school situation, a a soccer team of some sort, or maybe a secular job if they're old enough, and you send them out into the world, and before they go out, you say, just remember, Johnny, be all things to all men. Bye-bye. Would that be a good thing to say, your particularly teenager, teenager? Would that be a good thing to say? I mean, when I was a teenager, if I heard my parents say that, I would take it all the way to the limit and then beyond the limit. I would say, to the Jew, I'm a Jew. And to the drunk, I'm a drunk. <laughs> to the bar hopping partier, I become like a bar hopping partier. To win the bar hopping party. I mean, that, but there are limits, of course. To the child molester, I become like a child molester. I mean, where is the line here? And this fear that we have, and it's not just for parents, it's fears that we have for ourselves, too. Am I compromising too much? Am I compromising the right thing or the wrong thing? Am I, am I going over the line? Is there some kind of limitation that I should be aware of here? And so a lot of us end up in this place of fear when we think about outreach because we don't know how to be all things to all people. Uh, the other reaction that I get is an action, a, a reaction of judgment. 
an attitude of judgment. Let me demonstrate what I'm talking about. Some Christians think that the world looks at their church and, and says, you're boring. You guys are irrelevant. You're stuck in tradition. And so what do we do to be all things to all people? Some Christians say, hey, well, let's not be boring. And so they construct a service and they have music and they have preaching, all designed to be entertainment focused and slick and they have videos and it's all really entertaining and it's not boring at all. That's their attempt to be all things to all people. But I think most of us in this room have encountered a church like that. And when we think of a church like that, a lot of us end up feeling judgmental. Like they're not doing it right or they're sellouts. A lot of us have that judgment. Let me give you another example. Some Christians think the world looks at their church and says, you guys are stuffy. You're looking down on us. You with your fancy clothes and ties and beautiful hats with flowers and beautiful shiny things and wonderful buildings and big white pillars that look so formal. When I come into this church as a non-Christian, I come in and I think you're looking down on me. And it's hard, I think, for a non-Christian not to feel that way at times at church. And so what do Christians do? Be all things to all men. You know what they do? They make a church environment that is not judgmental. That's one of the first things they think of. So instead of dressing up, I dress down. I grunge everything out. I try to become and present this church as a non-judgmental kind of thing. And it, it even goes so far to some extent in, in some churches to become an emergent type of church. Many of you have heard that term before. It's emergent church. Let me read you what Erwin McManus from Mosaic Church in Los Angeles said, he said, the greatest enemy to the movement of Jesus Christ is Christianity. My goal is to destroy Christianity as a world religion and be a recatalyst for the movement of Jesus Christ. And some people are upset with me because it sounds like I'm anti-Christian. I think they may be right. Okay, that, that, you're going over the line there. I mean, really? You're going to say, I, I wouldn't say it that way. But you kind of sort of get what he's saying. There's this religion, there's this ritual, there's this formal structure that people are not happy with. We don't have the best reputation as Christians. And so we want to do something with that. We want to try to say, no, it's not really about that. It's about Jesus Christ, the person. It's about a relationship. We try to break down these walls, but oftentimes we become judgmental. We look at how other people do it, and we say they do it wrong. They miss the point. And so fear paralyzing us, that's the way you say that word. I was like, fear paralyzing us or judgment. You know what judgment does? It divides us. Paul's goal for writing this chapter, this passage in chapter 9, is to lead us to confidence and love. We are to be confident when we reach all peoples. And we are to be loving when we do that. So of all the things we could say about this passage, uh, of course, I'm going to pick two or three, probably more like three. Uh, and we're going to talk about these uh, three questions. The first question I want to talk about in terms of what Paul is saying is, what is Paul actually doing? Uh, and then the second question is, why does Paul do it? And then the third question, why should we? Why should we do it? So what is Paul actually doing? We've been using these terms, all things to all men. I become like a Jew. What is he actually doing? If you read down, if you look down in verse 21, it says, to those outside the law, 
I became as one outside the law. Okay, so the words there, became as, the NIV says became like. So the first thing we know is that you're not becoming totally that. You're only becoming partially that thing. In other words, whatever it is you're becoming isn't total. It isn't at your core. It doesn't change everything about who you are. It's partial. Another implication of the words, I became as a Jew, or as one outside the law, to win those outside the law, is that it's temporary. Paul is using this adaptation as a tool to win people. And once he's won people to Christ, he doesn't have to have it anymore. So the implication here is that it's temporary. And the other thing is it's, it's intentional. And it's, it's very clear to see the intentionality in verse, um, in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant. Who's making who here? Paul is making himself a servant. So it is a, an intentional thing that he's doing. It's temporary and it's partial. It's not complete. Okay. Now, one of the things we need to think about is what is actually changing? What is actually becoming like something else? Because a lot of times, the message is changed. In other words, you take the gospel, you see a person, you take the gospel, and you change the gospel message to fit that person. You know, you leave out this little part for right now, we'll get to that later, because I know you'll run away if I tell you this part about the gospel. So I'm just going to change it a little bit and just give it to you. But the problem with that is, if you change the message, it's not the message, it's a different gospel altogether. And so often what we do as Christians is we don't actually preach the gospel to these people. We end up preaching something a little bit differently, don't we? That's true. We change the gospel. But Paul is very clear. He says, I make myself. I I don't change the gospel. The gospel is the same if you're in the law, out out of the law, a Gentile, a Greek. If you're rich or poor, it doesn't matter. The gospel is the same. There is a God, and you're not him, and God's glory is great, and you should glorify God in everything that you do, but you don't. You're sinful. You're an enemy of God. You want him dead. You want to be God yourself, and so God has separated himself from you because that's what happens with sin. That's what we call death, but Jesus took on death for himself. He took that that penalty on himself, and he made it possible for us to have a relationship with God. And you need to repent. You need to believe. You need to trust in Christ as your Savior and Lord. That's the gospel. You cannot change any part of that gospel when you present it to to anybody. What Paul is changing is the messenger, not the message. Paul is changing the messenger, not the message. Here's some examples of Paul changing himself. In Acts 17, we read about Paul quoting Greek philosophers and poets to Greeks. So he doesn't use the Old Testament prophets. He uses secular poets. In, in other places, in the Bible, many other places, Paul does use Old Testament prophets when he speaks to Jews. Paul works as a tent maker, you remember, in Acts chapter 18. Uh, in other places, he, it, it, it talks about this um, When he's in Corinth and he builds credibility for his ministry and he's a model to the Corinthian church. Paul takes a Nazarite vow also in Acts 18, but he didn't have to take the Nazarite vow, but he did anyways because he was trying to reach Jews. 
And then Paul has Timothy circumcised. Remember, Timothy was a half-breed. One of his parents was, in fact, a Jew, and one of his parents was a Gentile. And nobody had done him yet. And so he had a church, an Ephesian church, and a lot of them were Jews. And not having been circumcised might have presented Timothy a problem when he tried to reach the Jewish segment of his congregation. And so the solution is circumcision. That's that's an extreme example, I think, (laughs) of becoming like something. But that's how we are. We are we are becoming something. The message is not. Now, why does Paul do it? It's an interesting question. Why does Paul? Let me just read this verse to you. Verse, I think it's 19. Let's, let's read verse 19. Sorry, verse 20. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. Think about that. Paul. You are a Jew. I mean, in the New Testament, there's no less than a half dozen times where you say, I'm a Pharisee, I'm a Jew, I'm born of the tribe of Benjamin, blameless before God, I am a Jew. So why then does Paul say to the Jew, I become like a Jew? Well, the answer's a little too obvious, and sometimes I think we skip over it because it is. Of all the categories in chapter 9 that Paul presents with us, weak, strong, in the law, out of the law, Jew, Gentile, he doesn't belong to any of those categories. He doesn't see himself as in any of those categories. He is a Christian. In other words, Paul is trying to say, when I became a Christian, I'm cultureless. I don't, I don't have those distinctions in the world anymore. There are other places in the Bible where Paul says, I'm no more a male than I am a female when I'm in Christ. I'm no more rich than I'm poor. I'm no more free than I am a slave. I'm none of those categories. You see that? In verse 19, he says, I am free from all. I'm in this cultureless sort of place called a Christian. That is what he means by in the world, but not of the world. From John 17, Jesus said that. The application is clear. What are you? Are you a southerner? Could you become like a northerner to reach the northerners, to win the northerner? Uh, You a Duke fan? Could you become like a Carolina fan to reach the Carolina fan? Impossible, you say. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, that's funny, but really, I mean, we have to look at our race, our socioeconomic status. We have to look at all of the circles that we find ourselves in and all the roles that we play as human beings and say, primarily, essentially, I'm a Christian. And I bend, I flex, I adapt to all people to win all people. Now, this word win, this is another answer to the question, why does Paul do this? Why does he adapt? His goal is to win. And it's not the kind of win that you, you know, you basically win the non-Christian who loses and they fall down and you step on them and you, you know, you're not victorious over the non-Christian. The idea, obviously, is to win them back, win them over. Okay, so to persuade them. And here's the thing that's so difficult when we think about being all things to all men, a lot of times we, it's easy for some of us to become all things to all men. I mean, to be friendly with somebody, 
to give up these petty sort of things that we take on as human beings in the world. Sure, I'll give those things up and I'll be your buddy. And if you're in that kind of relational ministry and if you're a friend to a non-Christian, hear what Paul says. The whole point of doing that is to win them. In other words, there is going to come a time in your friendship where you have to present something terrible, unpopular, crude and awakening to the non-Christian, offensive. And Paul says, don't duck. Winning them is the whole reason you're doing it. The moment is going to come. Bring them back. What if Osama bin Laden was alive? What if bin Laden became a Christian? What if bin Laden came to Christ's community and stood on this stage and said, I want to meet with every Christian in Wilmington and I want to try to figure out a way to reach more American Christians for Christ? Would that not be absolutely amazing? I mean, that's Paul. That's the Apostle Paul. Bin Laden and Paul, what did they have in common? They were both out to destroy Christianity, you see. So when Paul first was dramatically converted to Christianity, everybody around him thought, wow, you're, you're an enemy of the church. That's ridiculous. So don't forget who's writing 1 Corinthians 9. Paul is writing. He was an enemy of Christianity, and now his whole life is about winning those. Gaining, in, in another translation, the word win means gain. I'm trying to gain them into the body of Christ, into salvation. So, a Muslim who becomes a Christian is no longer a Muslim. Sure, they can reach out to other Muslims, but they can also adapt themselves and reach out to Jews and Americans. And the same is true of you and me, because when we're Christians, we're cultureless. So to win back people. Now, why should we do it today? Here's really where I thought long and hard about my childhood. I did some weird things when I was a kid. I'm not going to tell you all the weird things that I did, but, um, but you know, you look back on those days when I was a, a teenager and I was like, why did I dress like that? Why did I behave like that? Why did I think that was cool? Why did I have a pet rock? You know, the answer is, I don't know. Everyone else has a pet rock. I just have one. And when you're in the moment, you know this is true. You would, in the moment, you don't think it's weird. I mean, people are telling you it's weird, but you're like, yeah, but everybody does it. And that's the key. Everybody does it. Everybody does it. So it doesn't feel weird. What I'm going to ask you to do, just take a mental exercise here. Perform this with me, okay? What I'm going to ask you to do is to step out of yourself. Take a look like you would as an adult back in, in, in your childhood. You know, you take a step back and just look at yourself. Look at us. Look at our generation. In the last 30 years, this is our generation, the one I'm, I'm involved in. I'm, I'm a part of this generation as much as you. We would look together. What would our generation be remembered for? What do you think? I mean, if you think about church history, the, the, the early fathers, you know, with, with the Bible being written as it was being written, it was being collected, and then we had this terrible persecution from Rome. So that period of time was marked by strength, 
but also fear, but also courage and passion and explosive growth. And then you have the post-Rome conversion, right? When Constantine made Rome a Christian nation, and from that point on, you had a different kind of age. And then from that point on, you know, skip a few hundred years, we go into the Middle Ages. What is that age characterized by and remembered for? And then you have the Reformation, and then you have the Enlightenment, and then you make your way slowly but surely to 2011. And all of the church is looking at this through all time. The church of Jesus Christ is looking equally at us as we look at them. What would they say about our generation? I think one thing they could say is that this is the age of consumerism. This is the age of consumerism. I come to this place on Sunday. I expect you to feed me. I want you to disciple my kids. I will only listen to the word of God preached from a certain type of personality. I'll only sing songs if it's in a certain style of music. I'll bring my neighbor to church, but I want you to save him. And I'll pay you. The age of consumerism. I think in general, if we look out, we have all the information we need. It's on the Internet. Just look at the church of, in America. I think there's an, there's an age of consumerism here. Now, in this age of consumerism, I know it seems normal. But the reality is if you take yourself out and you look at the whole of church history and you look at, at American Christianity, you might say, that's weird. They might say that of us. That's weird that you could sit in a church and be a member for 10 or 20 years and never once make a disciple. That's, that's weird. And so Paul is bringing to our attention this weirdness. It's the, the passage is designed to wake us up from things that we've been sleeping over. We hide behind this term, plant a seed. I, I plant seeds. I plant seeds. That's what I do. I plant seeds. I plant seed there and I plant seed. But you never really take the responsibility to lead someone to Christ. Now, the reason I'm saying that seems harsh when I say that. It does seem harsh. But let me read to you what Paul says in verse 23. Sorry, 22. I always get these wrong. To the weak, I became weak. That I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people. And here it is. That by all means, I might save some. Do you see Paul and his responsibility to lead people to Christ? It's strong in that one verse. Jude 22. Jude verse 22. I'll let you read that on your own. But there's another example of this. He is snatching someone out of the fire Paul is saying, I might save some. He says it five times. I might win them. I might win them. I might win them. I am doing the winning. I am doing the saving. And all of us in this room are saying, that can't be right. That simply can't be right. Paul, you know you're not the one that saves people. God is the one that saves people. Who are you? And in some case, that's true. You're right. It is God that saves people. And chapter 10 
At the very end of chapter 10, this is the famous passage where he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And he says, I want to please everybody. I don't want to make anybody stumble for them to be saved so that they may be saved. Now, that sounds better. That's better language, right? So that they may be saved. Okay, (laughs) we're back. (gasps) Okay, God is the one that saves. We're the one that plants seeds. But Paul so identifies with the salvation of God that he says, I might save some. Now, here's the principle that I gained from that. God can save people without using people. He just never has, and he never will. God insists on using people to save people. It's God who saves. But he wants to use us as tools. And he insists on it, absolutely insists on it. Joseph, in his role in Israel. Moses, in his role, saving Israel. All of the judges, saving Israel. Jonah, saving Nineveh. If we were on a remote island, you and I, and and we had no idea of Jesus, who we was, right? And uh, we never heard the name Jesus. We, we only sort of had this vague idea of God. Would we become Christians? Well, no. <laughs> no, the natural theology is there. God is divine and all this. But you wouldn't understand salvation. What do you need? Okay, well, let's not put a person there. Let's, let's, let's just put a book. Let's just plop a book down, and then, and then you can just read the book for yourself. So there's actually no person on this island. So you're reading through the Bible. Wow, God loves me. He has a wonderful plan for my life. Wow, I'm a sinner and you know, so forth. You get the gospel. You receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Aha, there's an example of God saving somebody without a person. Until you realize what the Bible is. The Bible was written, was authored by men. It is men and God intimately working together in a mysterious way. But still, it's... Who wrote Corinthians? Paul did. God did. Yes. Who saved this non-Christian? Paul did. God did. Yes. I mean, there's such an identification with God's plan of salvation here in 1 Corinthians 9. You can't escape it. And we as American Christians, particularly in the Reformed um, faith, we, we think so often that God is the one that saves, and I'm not really involved at all. And we can easily make that mistake. And Paul is here to remind us that we are, we are intimately involved in people's salvation. Now, when it comes down to it, God is the one that actually saves the person. But we are intimately connected to this process. Now, it's interesting that God insists on using people to save people. You have to ask the question, why does God? I mean, look, if there's 10 non-Christians out there, who's better, God or me. I mean, come on. God's going to come down and he's going to just lightning bolts, you know, and and, and all this stuff. And, and then they're going to say, wow, there's a God. Well, I'm doomed. And they fall down on their face. And then God comes as a whispering spirit, the lamb of God. And he says, I love you. I took all. And he's, oh, he loves me. You know, so God would be so much better at that than if I, a fallen, sinful man, were to actually attempt to convey the gospel. So why does God choose me? To save. Why does he use us as people 
as tools to save people. Why is that? Well, here's one very good reason. Because it's impossible for us to save anybody. It's impossible for us to save anybody. When God gives you something to do that's impossible to do, you will end up and you'll say one thing. God is great. That's that's what God wants. He wants you to endeavor to save someone and realize, I just saw the glory of God. God is great. That's what it means to glorify God. Yes, you can stand in the Grand Canyon and you could see God's glory. But God is telling you, he's saying, I want you to participate in the gospel. I want you to be a part, to join us, to follow after Christ, to become like Christ, to save others. Because as soon as you do, you realize, wow, this is impossible for me to do. And I see God's glory. And that's the point where you give God glory, the greatest glory. Let me give you an example of this. There was a guy named Paul, Paul Gong, in, in my uh, college years. And, and I met him. He's a Buddhist. His parents were Buddhist. He was Buddhist. And so Paul was not a Christian. And, you know, we became friends. And, and he met some of my friends that went to my church. And so we started to interact together. And he came to church. And, and after about three or four months, he became a Christian. And it was a great moment for us because he accepted the gospel and he grew in his faith. I was there you know, when he was taking his first steps. And then about three years later, I had some serious doubts. I was taking some classes in evolution and atheism, and it was very confusing to me. And I was I really just was struggling. And my bottom line question was, does God exist? Is he really there? Or am I just fooling myself? And it was a fear I had. It was deep down. And I brought this to, to the attention of Paul. And you know what Paul said to me? He said, David, if God doesn't exist, explain me. And I remembered, I saw the glory of God right there as he saw the glory of God. I couldn't refute it. And the thing about the glory of God is once you see this glory, you cannot unsee this glory. This morning we're going to be taking communion. We look at the bread and the wine. And we see our first example. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 is not our first example. Jesus is. Jesus wants us to remember his body and his blood. It's Jesus who adapted to us. That's the gospel. He gave up heaven. Philippians, he emptied himself. He became like a servant, like a man. And he became obedient to God, even unto death. Did Jesus change the message? No, he changed himself for our sake. And so as we take the bread this morning, we remember Christ's body was broken for us. And as we look at the bread that we're taking, 
Remember the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, the very next chapter. He says, is not this bread broken for you? Isn't it a participation in the body of Christ? And is not this cup of blessing that we drink, is this not a participation in the blood of Christ? So as we take communion, one of the things you can be doing as you think about it is you're participating. You're joining Christ intimately. You're so identifying with Christ. I'm going to pray and then the music will play and the elders can come up and we will take communion. Um, Logistically, I would ask that you would just come down the middle aisle here and then split on the either side, and let's try not to be too uh, packed in, the, in terms of traffic to try to get here. But just take this time and reflect on what it means to be a Christian. Let's pray. Father God, we have an example in Christ. Help us to reflect on Christ, appreciate what he has done for us, and think of how we can follow. We pray in Christ's name.